Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm Una Pantic, and I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Irina Falcone, and our special guest, Blair Henley. The Australian Open is officially behind us, with Naomi Osaka and Novak Djokovic emerging as the champions. Though a lot of focus was on the players and all of the obstacles they've had to endure this past month and year, journalists like Blair have had to adjust as well. Blair is a recognizable face on the tour as one of the top digital media creators and stadium hosts out there. After her own playing career wrapped up at Rice University, she got her start making instructional videos for Tennis Now and writing for outlets like Tennis Magazine. Since 2015, she has been a stadium host at some of the most popular calendar stops on tour, like the U.S. Open, Cincinnati, Indian Wells, and Delray Beach. She tells us all about her career and what it has been like to get quality time with big names like Roger Federer while building relationships with new faces like Coco Goff and Seb Korda. She explains how her work has been impacted by the pandemic, though it hasn't been all entirely bad. Zoom has made journalism possible from anywhere in the world. During the Australian Open, she did online interviews she dubbed Quarantine Chronicles with Victoria Azarenka, Stefanos Tsitsipas, and Rajiv Ram. To start off the year, Blair was one of the lucky few on site in Delray Beach, and she tells us all about being part of that experience. All right, without further ado, let's hear from Blair Henley. Hey, Blair, welcome to the show. It is an honor to have you on. Thanks, Nina and Irina. So good to see you guys, hear you guys. And this is such a privilege. I feel lucky to be here. Wow. Um, you, you are a big face in tennis, especially in our world. We're, we've always looked up to you and seen you doing so much work, great work. And you recently went to Delray Beach, one of the lucky few to get to be there. So we want to catch up with you on what it was like to be at the first tournament of 2021. What is your initial take on Delray? Well, first of all, I'm glad it happened. I didn't know for sure that that tournament was happening until about three weeks before it happened. I actually had plans to see my family for Christmas. They live very close to Delray Beach, about 35 minutes north. Uh, so I already had plans to, to fly home for that. Uh, and then flew back to Texas for one week and then flew back to Florida. Not ideal in a pandemic, but again, I had no idea that that was going to be the scenario. So I felt lucky that it happened, that they asked me to be back. I think this is my sixth year doing Delray Beach. It was actually one of the first tournaments I started doing. And one thing I can tell you I really appreciate about that tournament is they give me a ton of creative freedom, which I would say most tournaments try, but some things are just a little bit too outside the box. Whereas Delray Beach, I feel like is maybe, has, has a bit more of an open mind uh, in terms of the content, which I always appreciate. So yeah, super happy to be there. Pandemic stuff is tough. COVID protocols are, make my job a bit more of a challenge, but I think we all just feel lucky to have live tennis. 
I was just going to say the fact that you said creative freedom, you know, you have activities that tournaments will put players to do and they take them different places. But with a pandemic, that's kind of hard. So you probably had to be super extra creative this tournament. Sure. Yeah, you definitely I had to I had to make use of the people who were there. And I have to tell you, the people who were there, many of them uh, weren't necessarily on the initial entry list because there were so many people who pulled out of that tournament. So I had a whole lot of ideas for a whole lot of players who ended up not <laughs> playing in Delray Beach, uh, which is just the nature of my job. I, I spend a lot of time conceptualizing and pondering ideas that, you know, if a player pulls out, obviously that's not happening. You could have a player who you're like, oh, for sure they'll, they'll go for this and they don't. Um, so there's definitely a lot. I, I try not to think too often about the time that I have wasted on thinking about ideas that don't actually happen. Uh, but that said, I think you just kind of get, get better at adjusting. Um, and little things like we had a lot of new faces in Delray Beach this year. And so one of the video ideas uh, that we had that, again, I didn't think was going to be anything special is kind of one of those things, well, we can't do a whole lot else. So let's get the guys who are playing here for the very first time to give a little bit of their background to talk about some of their hobbies. And I don't know if you guys have had the privilege of doing anything with Ivo Karlovich, but he is the absolute best and, you know, he's obviously much, much older than these guys who are playing in Delray for the first time. And so I, I'm not kidding y'all, I, I begged him. I think he initially said no to this. And I said to Greg Sharko, who was the ATP comms person on site, I said, Greg, like, do you think we can go back to him one more time and see if he'll do this? And he agreed. And, and the deal was that he had to start off. Hi, I'm Ivo Karlovich. I'm 41 years old. And, and then I had to interrupt him and say, Ivo, wrong wrong video you're in the wrong video and that just that little bit of of sort of an oddball twist to a very straightforward video was just so endearing and people loved it so you just that's the one thing I've learned is you just never know there are things that I feel so confident are going to do well on digital channels and it's like you know 200 views and then there are the things that I'm like well we did it let's just push it out there and people go crazy for it. So I, I have given up on trying to predict what will do well. And therefore, I just try to do as many things as possible and see what sticks. It's impossible to predict social media, but I do know for a fact that bloopers do very well and things that have odd twists. So I'm glad that worked out. But do you feel like it's been more bonding because you're all kind of when you go to a tournament, you're all in this bubble environment and you're all seeing each other maybe a little bit differently, but you're all in something together. Does it felt more bonding or do you feel a little bit more disassociated from the players because you're wearing masks and avoiding each other? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There were a couple of times actually on, on the court in particular where the players are, are approaching me to ask a question. I'm backpedaling. <laughs> so there's, it's, you know, nothing personal guys, but, but yeah, it is, it's, it, there's still that, um, just uncomfortableness in terms of physical proximity that is a challenge but I do think that there is a feeling of solidarity and uh, there's there's a historic sense as well as, as you know not many people have been there and done this and and tried to work through these unusual circumstances and so I think there's a, a feeling of that as well and saying hey the players I, I feel like for the most part have been really 
cooperative and have have followed along with sort of the weird ways that we have to do things now, and including putting their own lav mics on, which is which is always funny to watch. They're going to be experts by the time that we can do that for them again. But uh, yeah, no, I think overall there's a feeling of solidarity and overall overall cooperation. And and these people, you know, most of the players haven't talked to the media in, in quite some time. And so I think we have that going for us as well as they're maybe a little fresher than they might otherwise be. We found that uh, we interviewed a few players at the US Open and uh, someone that you wouldn't think wanted to talk all of a sudden just wanted to just continue talking. Even after we were done, we were recording. We were like, okay, actually we have to go. And you find that, hey, these players, like they actually need to have some sort of social aspect. They do want to talk to regular people. And, and we had one particular player just kept going and going and going. And then we saw her in an interview like from previous months and previous years. And it was just the most, you know, chill, monotone, didn't really want to be there. But um yeah, I can only imagine that these players that you found in Delray, they probably did want to talk to you considering all the, the requirements and the distance and all that. Yeah, I mean, and I will I will take any willingness on that front. And and really for the most part, I feel like players are are great and have been great with me. And again, it's building the relationships, whether you're in pandemic times or not, it's those times where you're sort of sitting there and figuring out what can we do to make the most of this tournament in terms of publicizing our sport and getting attention from maybe people who don't know the nuts and bolts of tennis, but who can relate to a player telling a joke or doing, you know, a, a lighter segment in a Facebook live. So it's just finding the different avenues to, you know, tell people about our games. There, that, there's a lot more to us than just hitting a tennis ball across the, the court. Yeah. Totally. And there's a lot more to media than trying to like get you guys stuck and, and call you out on something and cause a, you know, like a headline that's negative. So I think it, it goes right. both ways. And then I wanted to ask you about the new virtual interviews and the virtual press rooms. How have you found communicating via Zoom? I know you've done Tennis Hall of Fame interviews with some legends on Zoom and you and Nick McCarville had a show for a little while. How's the virtualness been going? I love that it's a thing now, to be honest, because I think the players are used to it. I think it gives us another avenue. Like I said, it's it's sort of about being creative. I, I, these circumstances are unusual, of course, but in general, we're always looking for other ways where we could get a player to open up off the court or, or give us their thoughts on a match. And the fact that this is now something that pretty much everyone knows how to do, I think that's a huge thing for our sport. And I think that that is going to continue long after, you know, we don't have to do this anymore. I think it's good. It's great to be able to do an interview where you don't have to have the person sitting next to you and it's standard now. And so I think it's going to be a great way to converse with players throughout the year. The hologram thing that was initiated at the U.S. Open last year was by far one of the coolest things I had ever seen. I just, I was watching and I was like, wait, is she actually next to Novak? That's not supposed to be allowed. <laughs> but I mean, that's the future. That's the future. You just have to adapt and adjust with adversity. Sure. I'm definitely a little nervous though, because I don't want it to turn completely virtual and then we don't get to go to tournaments and be on site and be next to the core. It's, it's very different, right? Like I think you you don't want to lose the experience of being on site, right? 
Yes, I, I think that's a great point, Nina, is that that still, in my opinion, needs to be the core way that we get our information from athletes, whether it's in tennis or any other sport. I think having Zoom as sort of a peripheral tool is great, but really nothing can replace sitting across from someone and having that conversation and the nonverbal cues that you get and, and all those sorts of things. I don't think there's anything that can replace that. And I think for the most part, tournaments are aware of that. And I, I do hope that we're going to get back to that as soon as we possibly can. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Blair Henley. She's sharing how she got her start as a stadium host at the 2015 U.S. Open. Keep listening for more. And for those who don't know your story, you played at Rice University. You grew up playing tennis. I think your dad was a coach. And then you got into writing for tennis and then YouTube instructional videos, Tennis Now, that are still out there and have thousands of hundreds of thousands of views. But I'm curious how you got your foot in the door in the hosting job where you actually come on court and do post-match interviews, because those are some of the most terrifying and exhilarating moments, I think, in a media career. Um, yes, and you would know, Nina, because you have, have now had that experience as well. It, it definitely is a completely different atmosphere than doing anything in a studio, which is the only experience that I had before the 2015 US Open where a friend of mine, Nick McCarville, who you guys have had on, he was not able to do the job as Court 17 MC that he had done the year prior. He was working for USA Today and couldn't do both. And he recommended me to Michael Fuhrer, who has now been my boss for every year since. And he took a chance on someone who had no experience in a stadium. I am so thankful that he did. And on that court, the great thing about starting there, even though, you know, I'm thinking, how is this my first tournament? How is the US Open the first place that I'm attempting to do this? But I was playing the music as well. There's no producer, there's no stage manager. I am the one blocking the players from walking out prematurely on the court. I am getting the cues from the ESPN cameras because every court is streamed at the US Open. Uh, so I had to sort of learn how to do all of that on my own. And there was no better way to learn the ropes of emceeing. And it also because I was the person at the door saying to the player, okay, we have one minute to go. That interaction too was helpful in building rapport and trust and all those things that I think make an interviewer's job easier. So it, it couldn't have been a better training ground. I was absolutely petrified to start off, but I survived. And, you know, here we are in 2021 and I'm still very thankful that I get to do this as my job. I mean, your back was against the wall. And I mean, you said that you played at Rice University, you know what it's like to play under pressure. And yeah, I mean, you knew what to do and you adjusted and that's awesome. You were, you were thrown to the wolves and you were able to make it happen. That's awesome. Yeah. I was just going to say the post-match interviews as a player, I felt like I knew what questions to ask. Um, so in terms of asking those post-match interview questions, I felt 
pretty comfortable with that. The aspect that I, and I hope I've gotten much better at it, that, that was toughest for me to begin with was kind of the, the crowd interaction, the warming up of the crowd, the, you know, are you guys ready for some dentists? That, that whole spiel. I mean, it's corny, but it's also nice to have. There's a feel, especially on court 17 at the US Open, which is such a neat little stadium. Uh, to have somebody who can sort of get everybody going is great. And you realize it's not that easy to do it well. <laughs> so that, that is the one skill that I really at first was rough on. And I sort of had to build that as I went along. Did you like it right away? Like when you first started doing it, cause you had a background in tennis, you'd done different parts in the, in the media world that you hadn't done that. Did you enjoy it right away? Yes, I was, I was all in. I will tell you, I was worst at playing the music <laughs> because I, I mean, easily distracted. And plus you have, because I'm the only person out there and I have a microphone, people assume that, that, you know, where seats are and what match is being played where. And so, so often in changeovers, people would come down and talk to me. I'd forget to turn off the music. Fergus Murphy would be yelling at me from the chair. Uh, no, love, love Fergus, but I definitely got scolded a time or two <laughs> in the early days. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I loved it and felt incredibly fortunate right off the bat to be able to do it. So players are not the only ones that have a TBA kind of schedule wise this year. What is your projected schedule this year? Uh, Arena, great question. <laughs> um, I'll let you know uh, when I find out. Uh, no, it's, it's, they're really, I was hoping, I'm, I'm not the most optimistic person by nature. I'm optimistic for all my friends and those closest to me, but in terms of, of my own stuff, I'm like, this is going to be terrible. This is the worst thing I've ever done. Mistake here, mistake there. I'm hard on myself. And so, uh, but I will say in terms of the schedule, I had really hoped that, that things would maybe be slightly more normal than I feel like they're going to be for the first four months of the year. Obviously, we know about Indian Wells, and I think there are still some some question marks in the tournaments following that. So I have a lot of feelers out, as I generally do, and I'm just sort of waiting to hear what's going to happen because I, it's just everything is so up in the air, and I feel for the people who have to make decisions because it's the landscape is changing on a daily basis, and I cannot imagine. And given that, content or a stadium host that's not necessarily on the top of a people's priority list <laughs> so which i completely understand that as well so it's just sort of being flexible uh, and and sort of waiting to the last minute and being ready for anything but you need to make an income like uh, you're you're a freelancer right that's your, your official title and you're contracted by each tournament right so you need to also get an income so it's only fair for you to be trying to get out there Yes. Um, and I think the people that I'm talking to understand that too. I'm, I'm also very fortunate to have another income in the house. My husband works, which is, and I know like that is such a privilege right, right. now. Shouldn't be taken for granted. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I feel, and I have so many people who I'm close to who, who don't have that and have been, you know, up a creek for the last almost year. And, and I can't imagine the uncertainty of that. There's certainly uncertainty for me too. Like I, I am a driven person and I'm always, you know, wanting to, to do my best and look for what's next and, and what's the you know next big thing that I can try for. 
but I, I again I have I have sort of that backup income which is incredibly which it's luxury that's the only way I can describe it and I'm very well aware of that how have you managed having two young daughters not just during covid obviously them being at home but in general like while you're on tour and trying to juggle your career but having two small kids a lot of family support uh, if I did not have that there is no way I would be doing what I'm doing um, and it's it's actually you know some people are like how could you leave for 10 days but on on the other side of that when I'm home, I'm home all day, every day. Uh, I was home a whole lot in 2020. <laughs> um, so we'll see. I don't know how those, uh, those chunks are going to work out in 2021. But I, for me, it's been the greatest mix of being able to work when I'm gone, um, which, you know, I have to obviously manage that time away. But when I'm home, I'm 100% home and at their service for whatever the daily activities are. And I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that as they get older, things are probably going to change when there are, you know, dance recitals or they're playing tennis tournaments or whatever it is. I, I'm probably not going to want to be away as much as I am now, but taking it one day at a time and, and feel like right now it's a good balance. You should also pat yourself on the back for being able to leave work at work and be home and just be home. That's I mean, it, it, a lot of people aren't able to juggle that. So, well, my if if you were to say that to uh, my husband or my my parents, they might they might, <laughs> might disagree. <laughs> I don't know that she's she's mastered it uh, yet, but I I do my best, and and I think especially for little kids, presence is more important than just about anything else. It's, it's everything being there. So I. I I'll take one for that, but in terms of being able to separate mentally, I'm still working on it. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everyone. You're listening to an episode of the Tennis.com podcast with digital media creator Blair Henley. She's telling us what it's like to interview Roger Federer. Keep listening for more. Um, so when I've looked at your resume of past tournaments you've done, I stalked your website and your real did, did you make that real yourself? Like, what's your, your way of getting out there? Is it the website, social media, your brand, and then this reel you made? What's the, what's the way of getting a job in the, world of, in the world of Blair Henley? Well, last offseason, I, I made that website. And, and anybody who's worked with me can attest the technical side of life is not my friend. <laughs> so the fact that that website even exists is somewhat of a miracle. But for me, that was sort of more of a landing page so that when I reach out to people in the tennis world, I can send them to one place that has all of the details instead of having to list it out each time or, or send links each time I am reaching out to a tournament or a governing body or whatever it may be. So I, I think that's more of a tool. In terms of the demo, yes, I, I did that. I worked with a, a video editor to get that done. 
I cannot tell you how much I despise going through old clips to try to find. It's tough, yes, it's so bad. There is nothing worse because as I said, I'm hard on myself. No interview is ever perfect. Um, and so it's, it's like, well, how can I, there's, there are no perfect clips here. How do I decide what goes in this demo reel? Um, so, but it's, it's necessary. It's something you sort of have to have. And because, you know, I've worked really solely in tennis, I don't have an agent. Um, I, you, you're sort of responsible for creating your own <laughs> marketing materials, so to speak. Uh, so it's helpful in that department. That is so relatable. Irina and I are both like looking at our clips and past clips and we're both, I'm, I definitely hate everything I've ever done. And when I watch it back, I'm just thinking to myself how I could have done it better and why I didn't just do it the, like the better way. I don't understand. And why is this out there? Why is this on the internet? But that's what makes you keep going. That's why you practice. And that's because we're players. You get better. It's because we're, exactly. we're tennis players. I think that's it. I think that's the reason we're like this because we can't, we can't handle imperfection. When I was in college, my coach at the time, Brian Shelton, he used to say, all right, do you want to review some video? And I'd say, no, I don't. I don't like to watch myself play because it's the same thing. I'm like, why'd you reach for that backhand? You could have totally gotten there. A couple extra steps, but <laughs> gotta get better. But when, it, when it's your face and like the way you're talking and like the little ticks oh, yeah. you do, I'm just like, God, I look so stupid. Self-conscious side of us. Yep. <laughs> it's it's a challenge. Shout out to Brian Shelton, by the way. I He recruited me as a high school player. Absolutely. No him. way. Um, but but again, the, the tech in Georgia Tech, which is where I was coaching at the time, I was like, I don't know if it's the right fit school-wise, um, as I've established. It's not not kind of where my skill set lies. Uh, but he, he was absolutely incredible and and what a coach. That's awesome. I felt that the same way. I felt the same way about tech, so don't feel bad. And I noticed also on your website and in, in general, just following you, that you have done a lot of Roger Federer interviews. At least it feels that way from someone who has probably spoken to him once. And Irina is understandably obsessed with him. So you and Roger, does he say hello to you when, you, when he walks by you in the hallways? Uh, I would say that he acknowledges me and that, that makes me 0% special because Roger acknowledges everyone. Uh, <laughs> Roger is walking. I feel like he's sort of like the pageant queen of tennis players is, you know, he's the, the head nods, the hello, the, he's, he's just walking down the hall and he, it, it's, he just, it's like he touches everyone in some way as he's, you know, going about his daily business at a tournament. So I don't think that makes me special at all. I think that's just what Roger does. But the ATP finals in London, I think it was 2019, that surely had to stand out as one of your most special weeks, at least from the outside looking in, it looked like it was a lot of fun. I, again, that was a last minute thing. One of those tournaments that I was on my toes, got the call two weeks later, maybe less than two weeks. I was in London and it was, I will say riding on that boat ride from the, and I'm going to, I'm going to screw up all the London geography, but it's the boat ride to go to. Yes. Uh, and you're, so you're, I'm on this boat with, you know, all, the top eight tennis players in the world, including at, at a time where we have Roger, Rafa, Novak. I mean, it's, it was just, I had, I, I don't often internalize what I'm doing while it's happening. It's usually after the fact, I'm like, wow, that was, that was pretty cool. But that was a moment where I was like, you know, let's maybe don't think about how cool this is because it was really a, a, an experience I never would have thought that I would have had um, with those players. And, and, you know, 
getting to know Steph, I think that's also huge is getting to know the younger players when they're young. Uh, so that as they get older and they get bigger and less people can talk to them, you hopefully have a foundation that you can build on. Um, and so that's been huge, like even in Delray Beach where we saw Sebastian Corda get to the final. I have a feeling that kid's going to be legit. And I mean, I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I don't think I'm going out on a limb. Uh, but again, we did four interviews, five actually, because we did one sit down that is a foundation that I now have with a player who one day might be completely inaccessible <laughs> and not right. that that's going to give me access necessarily, but it certainly doesn't hurt. Exactly. And you had that interview with in Midland with Coco Goff. And then the next year she broke through and became like the most famous person alive. Yeah, and you had this 10 minute sit down with her like months later. I, and, and I am not kidding in Midland, I walked up to her and Corey, her dad and introduced myself and said, Hey, would you guys, you know, Coco, would you be up for doing a sit down? Corey, would you be okay with that? Sure. What time are we thinking? I mean, that, so that was in February or late January, early February. And it was Wimbledon where she had her breakthrough. I believe. I don't think I'm my years get confused. No, you're right. You're right. She went and she qualified and she beat Venus that year. Mm-hmm. And I'll never approach Coco Goff and her dad again. <laughs> <laughs> Be confident, Blair. Come on. You can totally approach <laughs> so No, but, but again, the, the foundation, you know, in the interviews that I've done with her since there is a little bit of a background and familiarity and, and it certainly helps. Exactly. It's all about building relationships, but you don't want to abuse them. But you've also gotten used to putting yourself out there because sometimes you're working more on your behalf than there's no one helping you get these players. You said you walked up to her. So you've been used to like really awkward exchanges and rejections too. I feel like that's part of half the job, maybe more. Yes. I've gotten a lot of no's um, and no's whether that's asking an agent for something or a player for something or pitching a content idea that gets, you know, shut down that happens a lot <laughs> um you know I, I definitely get a lot of those and same thing in in the writing world and anybody who who writes you know Nina you you know if you're pitching things you're you're getting no's all the time so I I will say one thing about me when I get a no it just makes me want to try harder I and I wish some some days I wish it didn't because some days I'm like I wish I could just be like okay we're not going to go that avenue and, you know, let me go take a nap or I'm going to sleep in tomorrow morning. But instead it's like, okay, they said no to that. What is a way to sort of get around this or to think of it from a different angle or what player can sort of accomplish the same thing that this other player that I wanted that I'm not getting was going to accomplish. So I, <laughs> I, it's yeah, a lot of, a lot of trying and failing and trying again. If, if, we could probably quote Stan Abrinka's tattoo right now if we want. <laughs> <laughs> Try again, yeah. fail harder. Yeah. That yeah. I mean, that's part of the game though. You just have to be okay with the losses, with the rejections and the no's. And I think the, the biggest thing is be able to just kind of be a, a, a duck almost and just let it like water on a duck. That's the analogy I'm trying to say. Just let it roll off of you and just move on to the next one. Yeah. And I've never regretted asking. And, and for the most part, as long as you ask in an appropriate professional way, you may not get a response from an agent or whoever you're, you're reaching out to, but I've never, I've never regretted trying because there's, there, to me, there's nothing worse than being like, Ooh, you know, maybe I should have tried because, you know, so-and-so ended up getting an interview and, and 
you know, I just did, didn't try. So I definitely always give it a go. That's so frustrating too. There's like a competitive edge when you're at a tournament, no matter what you're working for, of like trying to get interviews and asking and figuring out the ideas and all of that. And then you're competing with yourself because you want to do more and do better and improve, not just like your real, but the better content, the more social media hits. It's just like a relentless cycle, right? Every single week almost. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I think that's where having an athlete or a background as an athlete, as, as you guys know, I think it, we're used to, to taking the L occasionally and you just sort of have to like brush yourself off and, and move on. And when you played, this probably gives you some, some leverage when you're talking with players. They don't probably know this, but you had a one-handed backhand and that is so rare and so beautiful. And it's so cool for people who have not seen the Tennis One instructional videos. It's out there. It's on YouTube. Is that something you always had and you just never decided to do a two-hander? Like, how does one develop this? My dad, to his credit, I think, taught me a one-handed backhand from the time that, you know, I started holding a racket four or five years old. And I, that's all I ever had. Never had a two-hander. In fact, watching me try to hit a two-hander is a comedy in itself. Uh, but super thankful for that shot now. You know, if if I was going to be if I was good enough to, you know, be at your level arena or to, you know, to be in the top hundred, top 50, maybe I would have one day regretted. I don't know. I, I, to be honest, I never felt like my backhand was a liability. I think people thought it was. And so I always knew what people's strategy was against me. Well, I, they're going to hit it to my backhand. So it was, it was never, <laughs> it was never a secret. Um, mistakes guys. <laughs> so, uh, but, but yeah, I, and even I played tennis this morning, super thankful for my one-hander to this day. I have a lot of, in particular, uh, older tennis players who, you know, harken back to the classics that I, I get a lot, I have a lot of uh, older fans when I go out and play at a club or anywhere public. It's all the older people come up and say, wow, what, what a classic game you have. So there you go. It's a compliment. Awesome. Take it. You know, we'll take any compliments. All right. Well, on that end, on that note, um, I think we can we can let you go blur back to your busy life and your busy work. And we appreciate your time. It's been so fun catching up and getting your insight into everything there is to talk about in tennis. Well, thank you, too. And, and when we end this, I feel like I'm going to be one of those people where you guys have to say, OK, like we have to go. We have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so great to see tennis people because it really is. You know, we've, we've missed we've missed each other and being together. And it's nice to talk to people who you know, work in the same crazy wild tennis world that I do. Wild indeed. Well, thanks again. Thank you for your time and um, good luck with your schedule and managing being a mom and a wife and uh, all of it. So great job and good luck. And hopefully we'll see you soon. Thanks, you too. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up as we bring you new episodes every week. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also watch the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, as well as the entire Tennis Channel team for their support. Thanks for listening.